Hello everyone and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a special one. It's a conversation between Rabbi Wilds and Michael Oren, who served as Israel's ambassador to the United States. In this episode, Rabbi Wilds and Ambassador Oren talk about the latest developments in Middle East politics, including the historic Abraham Accords between Israel, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates. They also chat about Michael's new book, which is a collection of short stories featuring a vast array of characters, from ghosts and Upper West Side Jews to aliens and Christian clerics. You'll also hear about Ambassador Oren's previous career as the assistant to Orson Welles. You're really going to enjoy this, so without further ado, here's their conversation. Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, I have the great, great honor of being able to interview someone who I have looked up to for many, many years, um, and a lot of people look up to in on many different continents and shores. Statesman, historian, member of Knesset, Ambassador Michael Oren, who has devoted his life to serving Israel and the Jewish people throughout the world. Uh, Michael Oren is a member of Knesset. Uh, when he was a member of Knesset and deputy minister in the prime minister's office, he interacted with foreign leaders and defended Israel <clears throat> in the media. He spearheaded efforts to strengthen Israel-diaspora relations, to develop the Golan Heights, and to fight against BDS. As chairman of a classified subcommittee, he also dealt with some of Israel's most sensitive security issues. Uh, for five years before this, uh, Dr. Oren served as Israel's ambassador to the United States. He was instrumental in obtaining U.S. defense aid, especially for the Iron Dome, and uh, American loan guarantees for Israel's economy. Uh, he has built bridges with many diverse communities across the nation, written dozens of op-eds, which have been published by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, fortifying the U.S.-Israel alliance. He is a graduate of Princeton and of Columbia and was a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. Dr. Oren holds four honorary doctorates and was awarded the Statesman of the Year Medal by the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. There's just so much to say, but I also wanted to mention, of course, that he is a prolific author, an extraordinary historian and writer, um, and is from uh, New Jersey. Uh, he made Aliyah in the 1970s, uh, was an emissary beforehand to Jewish refuseniks in the former Soviet Union, won two gold medals in the Maccabee Games. He's quite the athlete. Uh, in the Israel Defense Forces, he served as a lone soldier in the paratroopers that San Hanim, and as an IDF spokesperson participating in several wars and reaching the rank of major. He established the Lone Soldier Caucus in the Knesset. And just mentioning the Knesset, I had the great honor a number of years ago of bringing a group of MGE participants to the Knesset where Dr. Oren addressed our group, and he was just spectacular. He has spoken very graciously for us at MGE. I have the honor of knowing, having a relationship with his son, uh, Noam, uh, who's an amazing guy, is a beautiful family, lives in Israel. And Dr. Oren, thank you so much for joining us. Wow. Well, thank you for that extraordinary introduction, Rabbi Wild. Believe me, I didn't get introductions like that in the Knesset. <laughs> well, it is an honor. We will, we, will, we will treat you at least as well as they, as they treated you in the Knesset. <laughs> and it's always a pleasure and an honor to be with the, the Manhattan Jewish experience. It's really very special for me. Well, thank you. And thank you for taking the time. Uh, tell us a little just how you've been spending your time during quarantine. And there's a lockdown well, in Israel now. 
is a lockdown in Israel, and we're not particularly proud of our, our country, strange enough, right now. It's, uh, the, the government hasn't performed very well, and the society hasn't performed very well. I'm talking to you from Jaffa, uh, where, you know, for many, many weeks, if not months, uh, the young people didn't wear masks, um, and they congregated on the beach, and they even had rock concerts on the beach, and, and no one was thinking long-term of the consequences, and now we have the long-term consequences. So um, I spend most of my days, alas, uh, indoors, uh, the one exception is that I, I continue to row. You were allowed to have uh, individual sports, and I have a, a rowing skull on the mighty Yarkon River. Uh, and I was out rowing about 12 kilometers this morning, which is always good. Uh, and then I write. Um, I continue to write uh, short stories. I write op-eds. I have an op-ed in the, uh, the Wall Street Journal today. Uh, another longer article coming out uh, just uh, before Yom Kippur uh, on foreign policy. And, um, and I'm involved... Uh, very much still in Israeli public life and in politics. I'm now advancing a project called Israel 2048. It's a vision of what Israel should look like on its second hundred years. And it covers every aspect of Israeli society. It's, it's foreign policy, it's Jewish policy, diaspora affairs, defense policy, health policy. And it's a, it's a discussion group uh, of concerned Israelis that I run. And we, just, we, we exchange ideas. Uh, apart from that, I play guitar, study French, and talk to my grandkids on Zoom. <laughs> oh, I'm exhausted just listening to that. So you've been very, busy. very busy. I, wa yeah. I, I want to come back. We're going to come back to your new book on short stories because that is really fascinating and it's amazing. Right. And we want to tell our viewers and our listeners about that. But uh, you're a historian of the Middle East. Uh, I'm really yeah. curious what your thoughts are about the new Abraham Accords uh, between uh, Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain. Well, I mean, and, and what kind of long-term effect do you think this will have? You know, I, I have two perspectives on it. One is as an historian. You know, I wrote my, my doctoral dissertation about the failed peace efforts between Egypt and Israel in the early 1950s. That's how far back my memory goes on this. Uh, and then I wrote a book about the Six-Day War and about the peace process after the Six-Day War. And then uh, in diplomacy, I've been involved in the peace process. I took part in the last uh, round of negotiations with the Palestinians, uh, interacted with American mediators, such as uh, Secretary of State uh, John Kerry. So I have all of that perspective. And uh, starting in, 1990, uh, in 1993, I was an advisor to Yitzhak Rabin. So I, I lived through the Oslo period as well. So I have you know, multiple uh, perspectives on this. And I will tell you unequivocally that the Abraham Accords are a stunning and unprecedented diplomatic uh, breakthrough. Uh, that overturned all of the assumptions um, that have existed in this peace process going back 30, 50, even 70 years. The notion that Israel had to give up territory for peace goes back to 1950. And the notion that the Arab-Israeli conflict is the core conflict in the Middle East, that the core of that conflict is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, that the core of that conflict is Israeli settlements or Israeli building in East Jerusalem. All of that was overturned. All of that was disproven. And beyond that, you know, we have these peace agreements with Egypt and with Jordan, but they are peace agreements. They're not normalization. We have peace with those governments, but we don't have peace with the Jordanian people or the Egyptian people. The agreements between Israel, Bahrain, and the UAE are peace agreements between peoples, uh, the normalization. It's going to be exchange of, of of tourism, of investments, um, religious pilgrimage, certainly uh, of Muslims to Jerusalem. And I believe this, complete, this creates a completely different precedent 
uh, for peace arrangements in the Middle East. And uh, every, any future arrangement, and I believe there will be future arrangements, and soon um, with countries like Sudan, Oman, um, perhaps down the line Saudi Arabia as well, those peace agreements will look like the Abraham Accords and not like the Camp David Accords of Egypt and Israel of 1979. It'll be very different. So it's a stunning breakthrough. And I hope that, um, you know, American Jews appreciate what this means for us in Israel. Uh, it's a new age. It doesn't mean the conflict's going away. The conflict now is much more a Israeli, Sunni, Arab uh, on one side and the Iranians and the Syrians backed by the Russians on the other. It's not the old Arab-Israeli conflict. And we're still facing the possibility of war in the not-too-distant future. But it's, it's a different Middle East. And you ask me, you know, it, it is nothing short of a miracle. Wow. I'm so happy to hear such a positive. I'm thrilled about it, but you know, there's so much, unfortunately, negativity, cynicism, anything that comes out of uh, the Trump administration that, you know, even Jewish people who love Israel are so skeptical. I'm wondering whether a Joe Biden, Kamala Harris win in November, in your opinion, in what ways do you think that would impact uh, these agreements and, and, and in general, the U.S.-Israel relationship? Well, you know, I, I work very closely with uh, former Vice President Biden, and I'm, I'm enormously fond of him. Um, I accompanied uh, Senator Harris to Israel, and I know her fairly well as well. They are both pro-Israel. They are both uh, deeply committed to the U.S.-Israel alliance, to Israel security, but we have policy differences with them. And both of these policy differences will impact the future of peacemaking efforts in the Middle East. One difference is over the Palestinians. Um, and... Uh, both uh, Joe Biden and uh, Kamala Harris have said that they will um, uh, renew U.S. aid to the Palestinians. They will reopen the Palestinian embassy in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, and other measures, um, which would be fine if it didn't incentivize the Palestinians not to go back to the table. <laughs> and the, 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 the pattern has been, and again, I come with a historical memory going back decades. Every time the Palestinians leave the table, and they always leave the table. They don't get punished, they get rewarded. And um, the, that policy has changed in recent years. Every time the Palestinians leave the table, now they do get punished. And that's why I think the present situation actually holds out a much greater chance of, of, of peace than any other moment that I have witnessed personally uh, in the last 30 years, because the Palestinians are gonna internalize the time is not on their side, and they'll come back to the table. The other uh, issue will be a policy difference over the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, where both um, Joe Biden and Senator Harris have said that they will renew the deal. Now, that deal is a strategic threat to Israel. It's a strategic threat to our new Sunni Arab allies. And you cannot, in the same breath, um, make peace between Israelis and Arabs by giving a deal to a country, Iran, which is, 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 is dedicated to destroying us. And that deal with providing the Iranians with tens of billions of dollars, and they use those dollars uh, to buy missiles to destroy us. So the two don't go hand in hand. We've often known, we've known for years and years that the, the, the uh, efforts to reconcile uh, with Iran were totally irreconcilable with efforts to bring about an Israeli-Arab peace. And in many ways, this peace that we have secured with Bahrain and the UAE is a result of common opposition to American policies toward Iran, the irony. So you, you don't want America going back into that agreement uh, now. I understand 
perhaps they'd renegotiate it, in which case Israel would have to make its interests very, very clear in any renewed negotiations. And President Trump has said he would negotiate with the Iranians as well. But those would be the policy differences. Apart from that, uh, Joe Biden, Senator Harris are deeply pro-Israel. Could, could, those, could the Iran deal or reinstatement of the Iran deal threaten these new, this new peace agreement between the, uh, the, U, uh, the UAE and Israel? No, I don't think so. But what, what it would threaten is America's leverage to bring about further deals. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because that's I mean, the no common enemy. Understand that mediation leverage is a product of trust. We have to trust, we and the Arabs have to trust the United States because um, we are basically entrusting the United States with, with the lives of our children and grandchildren. It's no small thing. And you're not going to trust uh, a United States that's giving tens of billions of dollars to the Iranians yeah. and, and providing them with the legitimacy to conquer the Middle East, which is precisely what they did with the Iran nuclear deal. And they moved into Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon with a deal. And so that is why you know, previous American administrations had no leverage to bring about peace. And that leverage was gained when America withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal. Wow, are, are you um, are you happy? Your your your, um, your exit from uh, Israeli political life um, uh, was actually very well timed uh, before the three elections. <laughs> it was. Um, did you feel like you got out just in the nick of time? Oh yes, the nick of time. You know, really. Um, before the fall, I got out and, um, and you know, my party basically fell apart, but I remained politically very, very active. And, and the fact that I think I got out well and clean uh, has helped me with in, in my continuing uh, political pursuits here. And I maintain very good relationships across the aisles. We don't have, you know, we have more than one aisle. Um, and that is, I think has come in handy as well. Wow. So tell us a little, um, uh, you know, you're a historian, you're, you've been a politician, uh, you've written books, and I just want to mention to everyone, if you have not written any of, read, excuse me, any of Dr. Oren's books, uh, Six Days of War, it was just uh, the uh, authoritative, authoritarian kind of um, uh, book on the Six Day War, which is so important. Uh, Ally was a book on your diplomacy. Why did you decide to write a book uh, of dozens of fictional short stories. It just seems really out of whack. <laughs> but, it, but it isn't, and I didn't decide. The short stories decided for me. Um, uh, I don't go to the short stories. They come to me. And uh, they pop up and they say, here I am. And my first reaction almost invariably is, oh, no, I can't possibly write something like that. Um, and before you know it, the, the story reveals itself to me. It's a process of revelation. Here By the go. way, I didn't mean authoritarian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked it. I liked it. It made me feel very strong. Um, yeah. You've become a dictator now. Okay. I like it. I like it. It, yeah. was, it was a totalitarian comedy. <laughs> um, so I, I've been writing nonfiction since I was 12 years old. I started off as oh, a poet. Um, and I came home from school one day and I had this strange feeling at 12. It's not what you think. And uh, it turned out it was a poem. And it was called you know, Who Cries for the Soul of the Pigeon? Uh, very sad poem. And, um, and I proceeded to write uh, collections of poetry. I published my first poem in Seventeen magazine, believe it or not. Really? And uh, yeah, yeah. I went on to write film scripts, uh, short stories, uh, and novels. I published uh, two novels already. Mm-hmm. Uh, not well known, but you know, published novels. And, um, and so this collection of short stories 
I wrote while I was in office. Now, under Israeli law, as under American law, if you are in high office, you cannot publish books. You can write books, but you can't publish them. So every day before I went up to Knesset, I get up very early, I would sit down and, and write fiction. And so this collection now of, of more than 50 short stories was written over the course of almost five years while I was in the Knesset, while I was in the prime minister's office, while I was you know, conducting diplomacy uh, around the world. And many of these short stories reflect those experiences. And, and this was, um, it, it seemed somewhat, it sounds a little like therapeutic for you. I mean, you were doing this while you were a member of Knesset. I mean, you certainly didn't have the time for this. Was this more of a, a way of expressing yourself? Well, it's always a way of expressing myself. It's not necessarily, you know, an outlet for frustration. As I said, the stories come to me. I don't go to them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I set out to write a different collection of short stories, right? Because I'm a great fan of short stories, but most collections are, are pretty uniform. And you can sum up the collections, you know, with one or two stories. It's, um, it's, a story, it's a collection of short stories set in a small southern town or in a, a town in Maine or in the Vietnam War. Um, every single one of these stories is different. It's, uh, it's mystery stories, it's love stories, it's murder stories, it's ghost stories, there's science fiction, there's historical stories, and there are Jewish stories. Um, mm. And in the introduction of the book, I talk about why fiction in general is Jewish and short stories are very Jewish. Tell us if you can elaborate on that a little. Well, first of all, just historically, culturally, you know, we Jews don't have a particularly uh, deep or long-seated artistic tradition. You know, archaeologists don't find examples of ancient Jewish art. Right? Most of it is, is derivative. It's Greek art, it's Roman art, right? Egyptian. Um, we have a lot of descriptions of, of music in the Bible, but we don't know what it sounded like. And we don't find musical instruments here. What we have is literature. In vast abundance, we have literature. And our literature is overwhelmingly short stories. The Bible, the Tanakh, is a collection of short stories. And some of them are, are quite brilliant in their discipline, in their pithiness. You know, we're about to read the book of Jonah on Yom Kippur. And the book of Jonah is all of a page and a half. And that page and a half has so much in it. I mean, I look at the book of Jonah, for me, it's a, it's a, it's a primer for diplomacy and leadership. Other people see, you know, the questions of prophecy and responsibility, but in a page and a half. Now, that is, a, that is just extraordinary economy uh, in our Bible, and that is our yeah. tradition. Yeah, it packs think, a real punch. And, 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 the, and, and the fact that it's being read on Yom Kippur, I think, also makes it, you know, like what message are we supposed to, you know, get from listening while we're fasting and the holiest day of the year, listening to a book of, of a man that is being sent to uh, motivate a non-Jewish city. A non-Jewish city. You know, it's interesting, you know, Jonah is, only, is the only successful prophet in the Bible and the only prophet who preaches to non-Jews. So that tells you a lot about <laughs> our relationship with prophecy. <laughs> well, uh, well, it's also who you're preaching to. It's a lot easier sometimes to deal with people outside of our faith yeah, than it is our yeah. own. I think the message is you can't run away from moral responsibility. Yeah. And that's why we read it on Yom Kippur. But you it's a short run, story. But you can't hide. I love that message. You can't hide. And it's, you know, it's a short story. But I think, I think, Rabbi Wells, it goes even deeper than that. I think that 
writing in general and short story writing um, is about the Jewish concept of freedom. Now, we have a very specific concept of freedom. It's a paradoxical concept of freedom because it's not the freedom of the 60s, and, and I remember the 60s a little bit too well, uh, where everything goes. Um, it's a freedom that is only truly free if it comes with law, with restrictions. And that's the message. You know, we have a holiday. We're the only people probably on earth that has a holiday dedicated to freedom. And yet that, that holiday imposes on us all these additional restrictions. Uh, we get out of Egypt, but we come to Sinai. And the message is you can only be truly free within the confines of law and restrictions because without that freedom is, is just is anarchy, is chaos. Too much law is tyranny, so that balance. So what is a short story? A short story is uh, a, a plot, a character development. Um, it's drama. What a novelist can do in 300 pages, a short story writer has to do in three pages. <laughs> so it's the ultimate discipline. So while short stories for me are freedom, I can be anybody I want to be anywhere, anytime. No one can tell me I have to write only about people like me. And yet in, in exercising that freedom, I impose on myself draconian restrictions. Yeah. And to me, that's the beauty of it. It's sort of, it's sort of the haiku of fiction. I just uh, just add something to just what you said. It's just so fundamentally Jewish, the idea that we celebrate freedom, not for its own sake, but freedom to be able to choose a system of limitations, of boundaries of these mitzvot, these commandments. So it's curious that the holiday of Shavuot, which does not, uh, which celebrates the giving of the Torah, uh, is the only one of the festivals that doesn't have a date. The only way you can actually figure out when Shavuot is to be observed is by counting days from when we were redeemed, when we were freed in Egypt. Right. Um, and that's the link between the physical freedom of the Exodus celebrated on Passover and the spiritual freedom celebrating the giving of the Torah at Shavuot. They're really supposed to be seen as a unit. So that- no, I, I'm sorry, yeah. in the introduction to the book, I, I tell a story about a, 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 young, a man I grew up with, a very assimilated Jew, very assimilated, hated being Jewish made fun of me. And he, he later on became a, a well-known um, director and producer and actor in Hollywood. And, um, you know, didn't marry you didn't raise his kids Jewish, but he visited me in Israel once. And uh, I took him to my show and I took him on Simchat Torah. And he looked around and there were all these Jews dancing with the Torah. And he looked at me, you know, genuinely perplexed and says, I don't get it. They're celebrating and dancing with a book that tells them all the things they can't do. <laughs> I don't get it. And, and, and it wouldn't leave him. And he went back to the United States, began to study uh, Judaism. And today he is an Orthodox Jew. Wow. That's so interesting. From the paradox. It's the paradox of Jewish freedom. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's a paradox. It's, it's a paradox. But on the other hand, I mean, all of the... Uh... All of the modern day studies, you know, demonstrate that without some level of discipline, without some kind of um, routine and rules and, and laws, you know, it's a, the, the feeling of freedom is very, very short lived and doesn't really fill you with much satisfaction. You know? Yeah, it's probably, I don't know, you know, America's going through some very rough times, but let's not forget that the, the Jewish notion of freedom is hard, is hardwired into the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, the founding fathers and mothers understood that freedom could only be guaranteed through checks and balances and limitations. It's a great idea. It's such a powerful idea. It's a Jewish, it's a Jewish, it's a Jewish gift. It's a Jewish gift. And it's, it's, it's what guides the short stories. Tell tell us a little about, I mean, you, you've got short stories on ghosts, Upper West Side (laughs) Jews. Yes, of course. (laughs) Biblical (laughs) aliens and a homeless woman. Um, Also, uh, coming out of a gay cleric, which is also really right. interesting. And a, I mean, a, a, not a, a Christian cleric, by the way. Right. <laughs> so it just, um, I mean, it's so vast. Um, what was it difficult for you as a writer to embody such a vast array of diverse characters? No, and, and, no, no, none at all. And I can explain to you, you know, where each one comes from. Um, the, the Christian pastor. Um, I had an early fascination with Christianity. Um, and I, I, one day, you know, precocious kid, 16 years old, I, lo- I knocked on the door of the Baptist church and asked Reverend Miller if he would teach me the New Testament without proselytizing me. And he did. And when I, when I worked with Yitzhak Rabin, I was the advisor on church affairs. And that knowledge of the New Testament came, in, came very much in handy. And my interaction with Christians, evangelicals, uh, Catholics over the years, I'm able to quote the New Testament. So I know the inside of a church. So that, that environment was very familiar to me. Um, I'll give you another story that may, maybe have people scratching their heads. There's a story called Fossils, mm-hmm. which is a story about a relationship between two very old women. They're in their 80s, uh, retired school teachers, and they have been lovers for many decades. Mm-hmm. And they're walking on a beach and they're having a discussion about uh, an incident earlier in the relationship that, that has left a deep scar. Now, what do I know about elderly gay women? And the answer is, well, maybe not much. When I went to elementary school, and this is in the 60s, um, the teachers I had had been hired during the Great Depression, the 30s. And in the 30s in the United States, they did not give teaching jobs to married women. The assumption was that there was another breadwinner in the family. So only unmarried women got jobs as teachers. And it turned out that a lot of those women were, not, were, were unmarried for a reason back then, and they were, they were gay. And it took, I didn't know this at the time being in school, but later on I learned that almost all my teachers were gay, and some of them had relationships with one another. And there were those of them I was, I was intensely fond of and respected. And so uh, two of these teachers become the model for the, for the couple on the beach in their 80s, walking down and, and talking about this incident early in their relationship. So that's where it comes from. Wow. You know, so these, are, these, are, these all were inspired by personal experiences then. Um, and, I've, and I've had a lot of them. Right. Yeah. I, I, I've been very fortunate in having a wide range of experiences, whether you know, I've been a soldier and have been in war many times, and there's, there's stories about war, and I've, uh, there's stories about diplomacy in Washington, and uh, and about television. I, I had a period where I um, I worked in Hollywood. I, I, it's not well known, but I was Orson Welles' assistant, and <laughs> and so yeah, no kidding. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Those of us, those of us, you're probably oh, too young incredible. to remember the Paul Masson wine commercials. Yeah, I'm, I know what you're talking about. I mean, I love yeah. Orson Welles. He's such a Stately figure, oh, God. Such a, a, he, person of authority, he was a figure, and a very mean man. But okay, but um, <laughs> you know, he, what did you I, do for him? What was, I, what was your... I had a very important job. 
I clipped the ends of his cigars. I helped him on and off with his cape, which weighed more than I did. I wiped the sweat <laughs> from his forehead with little sponges. Oh my gosh. And for That's this, good. I got paid an ungodly amount of money. And my overriding concern was that he wouldn't yell at me because he yelled and cursed at everybody. And he didn't yell and curse at me. I guess I was too lowly. But there are stories about Hollywood because I, I got to know Hollywood on the inside. So um, all these stories are coming from some place. And there's stories about faith and stories about God. And I am a person of faith and my relationship with God you know, began when I was a very, very young person and has evolved ever since. It's always evolving. It's full of questions. Um, one of the stories, which is, you know, there are some funny stories too. We have to say that it's not all, it's not all the darkness here. Uh, I address a question which has plagued me for many, many years. And that's the question is, question is, is God funny? Does God have a sense of humor? Now we know a lot about the God from, from the Bible. We know he is compassionate and merciful and wrathful and jealous. All right. Uh, is he funny? Is he funny? <laughs> and there's a story about a relationship between God and a failed prophet, not, not a Jonah, failed prophet named Zachariah. Mm-hmm. And the story is about, you know, God's sense of humor. Turns out he's pretty funny. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have, I don't know if this will uh, be insightful to you on this topic, but there's a, a, one of my favorite passages in the Talmud. Uh, these two scholars are discussing who is a ben olam haba, who is someone worthy of a share in the world to come. And Elijah the prophet somehow appears out of nowhere and points to, uh, to two gentlemen in the marketplace. And the rabbi runs right over and says, what do you do? And he says, we're, and he, says he, he was a jester, he was a comedian. Mm-hmm. And his job was to try to make people laugh, which was just interesting, at least that's not a biblical perspective, it's more of a rabbinic that from a rabbinic perspective, you know, humor and making people laugh and putting a smile on someone's face is clearly a, uh, a, a, a very, very important thing. Oh, huge, usually. Yeah. It's huge, it's, uh, Rabbi Nachman said, that one never knows the depth of suffering in any person's heart. And to make that person laugh, there's a mitzvah. No, it's and uh, you never know. Did, uh, so did, anyways, his, did, did his stories inspire you at all? You know, he wrote, he oh, wrote stories. Wonderful stories, wonderful stories. I actually have a, a book on my shelf uh, that uh, given to me by Yossi Klanalevi that I, I refer oh, to wow. quite often. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's right here over my shoulder. But uh, it's like all of these stories are coming um, from somewhere and um, sometimes places of pain. Yeah, well, I, I, first of all, everyone listening to this, please make sure you get the short stories. Uh, they're really, really worthwhile. and. I think it's also sort of a modern take on what rabbis have been doing for centuries. You know, there were these things, as you know, Michael, called magids. Mm-hmm. A magid mm-hmm. was a storyteller. In fact, the lead disciple of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, is, he was referred to as the magid of Meserich. And he was able to import, impart some of the most profound uh, and deep teachings of Judaism through simple stories. There's something about a narrative and a story. And there's no question that's why uh, I mean, I don't, can't get into God's mind, but why would the Bible, why would the Torah be so filled with stories? It just, you know, when I give a speech, the only thing I can count on people remembering is if is I a had story. A, a decent open joke and a story. Yeah. The rest, I could always keep repeating my Torah, but the yeah. stories, you have to be careful. 
you know, I've been involved in public diplomacy, you know, for, well, 45 years. Here. And the fact is, you know, when you start sprouting facts about how many times we've offered peace to the Palestinians, how many times they turned it down, how much territory we gave up, you, you lose your audience very fast. Um, when a fact comes up to a story, the story's always going to win. Yeah. And we have not emphasized enough our story because we Jews have the most remarkable story in all human history as far as I'm concerned. And the story of this country is a remarkable story. The story of what happened with these peace agreements in the last few weeks in itself is a remarkable story. And, um, you know, it doesn't, it's not always a happy story. Right now we're in lockdown. It is not happy, I will tell you. Okay, we don't always succeed. But we're here. And it, it, that in itself is an amazing story. You know, you mentioned the, my six-day war book. And, you know, the best compliment I always have on that book is that it reads like a novel. And it does. It really does. It's, it's thick. It's long. But yeah. it's like everyone who I know who has read that book has said the same thing. I could not put it down. But it, I, here, I, don't want to, I don't want to take away from me, Rabbi Roth, but you've got to work very, very hard to make that story boring. Right. It's just one of the most extreme. It's just an amazing story yeah. Yeah. Uh, in so many ways. But it's part of our Jewish story. It's a chapter in an even more amazing story. And that's the well, story you, of the Jewish people. Well, you, you know that, you know, what I'm trying to do, what I've been working on, MJ just celebrated its 22nd year um, of trying to engage uh, our less connected yeah. um, Jewish, yeah. I don't want to say youth, but it's mostly 20s and 30s we focus on. But um, mm. Israel and, and the whole um, pandemic has actually been difficult because Israel continues to be the greatest um, weapon, if you will, in our arsenal. If I want to turn people on to Judaism, I need to bring them oh. to Israel. Because Israel, you start feeling you're part of the, of the Jewish story. It's hard sure. to feel part of the Jewish story. And I love this. And I know how much you love the United States, how patriotic you are, and how difficult it was to give up your citizenship mm. here uh, to do what you're doing in Israel. But um, to get enough of our Jewish brothers and sisters to see themselves as an integral part of the story. And I was just talking to a, a dear friend, very involved with Birthright Israel. Um, you know, Israel has brought, uh, Birthright has just brought so many young Jewish people to Israel. We bring our, our own groups every summer. And it's harder to tell the story in the diaspora. It's just not. It's, either, it's, hard, it's, hard, it's harder for Israelis too. Why? Because well over 100,000 young Israelis have accompanied Birthright uh, trips here. And for many of these, these young Israelis, it's their first encounter with Jewish peoplehood. Okay. They, they, before they say, okay, what's the connection between me and, and cousin Josh in Long Island? You know, what do I have? I have more in common with the, you know, the Bedouin tracker in my army unit. Okay. And it, for Israel, it is at least as transformative for Israeli participation, participants in birthright as it is for Americans and others. Incredible. Uh, you should know the first night of Rosh Hashanah, a gentleman showed up at MG who comes on and off. He introduces me to this Israeli guy, also in his 20s. And I said, how do you guys know each other? And he says, he was the soldier on my yeah. birthright bus. I said, well, what are you doing now? Well, I wanted to come to the States. And mm -hmm. he's the only American I know, crashing on his couch. And uh, I said, that's unbelievable. I mean, that, 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 that's one of the great you know, gifts of birthright 
you know, we only think of it for Jewish continuity <laughs> reasons from the diaspora. Mm-hmm. You don't realize how important it is from the other way. My, my daughter, when she was a soldier, was, went on one of these trips. And um, she called home from the bus um, going up to Jerusalem. And I said, you know, Leah, how's that happening? And she was crying hysterically. And I said, Leah, why are you crying? She says, well, because we're going into Jerusalem. I said, Leah, you live in Jerusalem. You were born in Jerusalem. Why are you crying? And she says, I'm crying because everyone's crying. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. Oh, there's, a, there's a story. And that, that, that story spoke to you now, didn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent because, you know. A, a short story. A short story. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would tell you, I remember also when we were honored mm-hmm. to hear from you at the Knesset. Um, and you were showing us around. And I remember you telling us how awesome is it that the Israeli Knesset has a mosque in it. And people right. should be <laughs> proud of the fact. And everyone was like, there's a mosque in this place. And I remember you sharing how difficult it is for Israel to, um, I don't want to say defend itself, but articulate oh. its, the complexity of its position when the Palestinian narrative can be expressed in a very right, you know, sort of between the eyes. We are the victims. We are being oppressed. What does Israel stand for? And you were looking, you asked our group at the time, you know, can anybody come up with a line or two or right. something to encapsulate? Wonder, wonder whether or not, you know, um, the story of the Jewish people and somehow being able to show Israel within the context of that story. Uh, I, I remember years ago when, uh, when President Obama spoke in Cairo and, yes. uh, and it, was, it was upsetting to some groups that he had referenced the state of Israel as a product of the Holocaust, which of course there's some truth to that. But it seemed to be framed at the time as this is why there's a state of Israel. It sort of negated over 2,000 years of a longing for Zion, of people to come back to mm. their homeland. And I just don't know how many people uh, you know, are, are aware of that. And, and, and uh, Jewish people, you know, um, it would be great if we had a story that we so could I'll say, somehow... I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a short story. The short story was several years ago... Um, um, the prime minister called me to his, uh, to his weekend home and um, he sat me down and says, what are we going to do about this BDS thing? And I said to him just what you just said. I said, you know, when the Palestinians want to articulate their narrative, they got five words, oppression, ethnic cleansing, colonialism, racism. They got five words easy. Anybody can articulate it. You start talking to an Israeli and they'll start talking about the Holocaust. They'll talk about 2000 years of history. They'll talk about exile. They'll talk about, you know, we want to make peace. We defended ourselves. And you're a half an hour later. <laughs> you still don't have it. So, so uh, Netanyahu says to me, well, what can we do about it? I said, well, let me go out and look. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to some people. So who do I go to first? I go to all the Madison Avenue people. And they go and knock their heads together. And guess what they came up with? Uh, cherry tomatoes and falafel and great looking people on the beach, which is not going to get you anywhere. Well, and that's all the, and, commer- and the, com- the commercials are all, uh, you know, a beautiful Israeli girl in a bikini and falafel. Exactly. And, you that's know. what they came back with. So I decided to do, take it a different direction. I decided to go to the poets. And I sat with the poets and they came up with a narrative that was completely different. It was Israel is home. Israel's compassion. Israel is absorbing uh, refugees from 70 different countries. Israel is, is helping um, 
populations around the world plagued by disasters. Israel is this. Israel is welcoming. It was it, the Holocaust wasn't mentioned. You know, exile wasn't mentioned. We mentioned as a you know an improbable story uh, of of a people that comes home after thousands of years. And it was beautiful. And again, I, I would challenge anybody not to listen to this and not be deeply moved by it, because I was. The problem is it was eight lines long and not five words long. <laughs> We're still working on it. It's a work in progress. That's incredible. Well, tell us, um, any message that you can leave our listeners with from the stories that relates perhaps to the high holidays, or just a few days before Yom Kippur, the, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. Um, what... what, what um, what message would you, you know, could, could, could be born out of any of these great, I mean, they're all sort of connected to renewal and uh, um, uh, on some level. I'm just curious, just because I, we're in that well, I think time we have, I, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't contextualize, and that is this. We have been forced into a position of introspection, whether we like it or not. And, uh, and, that what, what we usually go through on Yom Kippur is a very personal, uh, silent type of uh, isolation and introspection. But now it's also external. And just as we should use Yom Kippur and the holidays generally and see, those, see these holidays as an opportunity, as an opportunity to reflect, as an opportunity to understand, to you know, get away from the, the, the material um, concerns of day-to-day -day life, we should use this period in the same way. Uh, but uh, we should, and I say this guardedly, because believe me, it hasn't been easy. We should strive to see what we are going through right now as a gift. A gift for more time with the family, a gift for more spiritual introspection, a gift. A gift for understanding of, of who we are, uh, what is our worth, where we have sinned, where we can improve, um, that type of introspection. And, um, and I say this again, as someone who, you know, I, I, as an ADHD person, the last thing I want to be is in lockdown. <laughs> you talked about my schedule. I keep that schedule for a reason. I don't, I don't want to let myself be bored. But I've, I can honestly say that, that this has been the most personally illuminating period in my life. I've come to understand things about myself and I, and even the short stories I'm writing um, are, are reflected. I think of an even deeper self-understanding. And for that, we have this epidemic to be to thankful for. Wow. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's, I, I think very inspiring for, for me, for everyone listening to this. Um, if, uh, we were to have this conversation in another five, 10 years. Um, I, we're, I'm just curious because I'm just I'm a huge admirer. Where, where do you want to, where, you, where do you hope to be? What else do you I want always, to try to I, accomplish? I, I always want to do two things. And um, you know, we haven't gone so much into my life story, but my life story has always been bifurcated. On one hand, uh, the writing and the art. The other hand is, is Israel and the Jewish people. And, uh, and attempting always to try to reconcile the two halves. Um, so, um, I remain very active in public life and my life has been about service ever since I was a volunteer on the kibbutz and a lone soldier, it's been about service. And I, I derive deep, uh, satisfaction from that. Uh, but I also want to keep writing mm -hmm. and whether it's fiction, nonfiction, um, I see them not as mutually exclusive. I see them as complementary. 
And I think that my, my, public, um, my public involvement has enabled me to be a better writer, a deeper writer. And I think my, my writing has enabled me to be a more compassionate and understanding public figure, yeah. like servant. Right. Well, God should bless you and your beautiful family with a happy, sweet and healthy year. And uh, we really thank you for your time and thank you. your devotion. You have just an extraordinary story <laughs> of your <laughs> own. Um, and just, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's just inspiring, always inspiring to hear someone who grew up as you did in the United States, loving America so much and doing so much now for the people of Israel uh, and developing that relationship and that alliance. Um, so I, I thank you for, uh, for sharing this and just wish you a gemar chatima tova, should be a shana tova matuka, sweet, happy, healthy year. Thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Gemar chatima tova. Gemar chatima tova. Awesome. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildscast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.